My name is Ian. For anybody who doesn't know me, I'm the pastor here at Night Church. Uh, why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to finish off chapter 4 tonight in our continuing study of the very beginning of God's church going forth throughout the world. So follow along with me. This is, this is a, 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 a mouthful tonight. There's a lot of verses here. So what I'm actually going to do is read starting in verse 13 all the way to verse 31 and then I'm going to stop and then we'll, we'll take verses 32 through 37 at the very end briefly. So follow along with me. Acts chapter 4 starting in verse 13 and following. We read these words. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and comprehended that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were marveling and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy sign has, appeared bef- has happened through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But lest it spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of of God to hear you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this sign of healing had occurred. So when they were released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God in one accord and said, O oh, Master, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise vain things? And the kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles, and all the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose had predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hands to heal, and signs and wonders happen through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed earnestly, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with confidence. Bow with me just one last time before we begin. Jesus, thank you for this word. I pray, Father, that you would give me linear thought and clarity of mind, and that I would say only what it is that you would have for your people to hear. Set me aside. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would communicate to the people who are in this room, what it is that they specifically need to to hear from this text. If it's something that is comforting, if it's something that is convicting, if it's something that is encouraging. Lord, I pray that you would do that work and we trust you to do so. We are gathered here, Lord, to listen and to hear only from you. And it is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So this text tonight, I think, is a good opportunity to pause for a minute and, and do a bit of a recap on, on where we're at. What is, 
what is it that's going on? What are we in the midst of? Because we are right in the middle of a drama. We're in the middle of something that's unfolding. There's been a ripple effect that's caused a ripple effect that's caused a ripple effect, and here we find ourselves right in the middle of one of these multiple ripple effects. In the very beginning of this, whenever we first opened up the book of Acts, what we saw at Pentecost Jesus ascending into heaven and the Holy Spirit coming down and, and giving everybody a different tongue to speak. There at Pentecost where thousands had gathered from all over the Roman Empire, the Mediterranean, to come for that feast. What we saw there was a reversal of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And what happened in Genesis 11 is that man sought fit to seek their own glory and to make a name for themselves, something that was lasting by their own efforts. They were going to build a tower that reached all the way into the heavens, and the Lord saw their efforts, knew that A, they wouldn't be able to do that, and B, it actually wasn't good for them even to try. It's not good for us to find purpose or meaning or fulfillment in anything other than Jesus Christ. There is no other name. There is no other fulfillment. And so really in an act of mercy, what God did is he confused their languages and it stopped construction and the people scattered away. And what we see at Pentecost is this beautiful reversal of that where people came in for the feast, the Holy Spirit descended in power, multiple languages were spoken, and instead of causing confusion, it caused unity. The gospel went out to all these different tongues and tribes and nations, and instead of a human kingdom being built, that was the beginning of God initiating his temple, which will be his temple forever. That is his people, the Holy Spirit dwelling not in, not in rocks like the Tower of Babel was built out of, but in living stones, which is us, his children. And what we're in the middle of here is that church being built, that kingdom being built, the kingdom that will have no end. This is the beginning stages of that happening, and there's drama, and there's trial, and there's travail, and there is trouble, but we know that the kingdom of God will not stop. Jesus Christ dying on the cross looked like defeat. It looked like he was victimized. It looked like he was out of control. It looked like he had no say in what was happening, but he was fulfilling prophecy and he was doing exactly what the Father had sent him to do. His death on the cross was not defeat. His death on the cross was the ultimate victory. His death and resurrection was the death of death itself. And now that kingdom, his people that are being built up into a holy temple is the very work that is happening here and it's the very work that we're in the middle of continuing to this very day. The church of God will not be defeated. And this is a word to any of you who might be in ministry or any of you who might be evangelizing to a friend or a neighbor or a family member because it will come with great trouble. We will face great trouble in the church. We will face trouble evangelizing. We will face trouble with disbelief. We'll, we'll face trouble with people hating us. We'll face trouble with people thinking wrong things about us and saying wrong things about us and rejecting us just because of the fact that we're Jesus followers. And that's what we see here. But we cannot fail at our task because ultimately God is the one who is working in the midst of us. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who gave the growth. Jesus is alive, and the work of world evangelism is not yet complete. So if you're here tonight and you feel beat up, you feel like you're on trial, what's, what's happened here is that 
uh, continuing the work that Jesus began to do and to teach in the Gospels, Peter and John have performed a miracle. They've healed the guy who was unable to walk from birth, and they get in trouble for it. And so they're put on trial. And if you remember, the, the entire Sanhedrin is gathered. The entire, the entire Supreme Court of Israel has taken these guys in. Even the high priest is there. This is what we considered last week. And the way that they would interrogate people in those days is they, would, is they, they had 71 seats. There were 71 members of the Supreme Court or of the, or of the Sanhedrin. And every, everybody would take their seat. And their seat was elevated in this semicircle. And they would place the accused in the middle from an elevated position looking down on the accused. And then they would interrogate them. And Peter and John are in this very intimidating situation, but we looked at last week is that although they are submitted to the governing authorities, they did not fight, they did not bicker, they did not take up arms when they were arrested, and they were in jail overnight for healing this man and then proclaiming that that healing power was in the name of Jesus Christ, and now they're before the Sanhedrin, they're in trouble, and they submitted to that authority, they submitted to those laws, but they're not cowards. Peter very boldly stands up and he says, let it be known to you and to all of Israel that this man stands before you well and in good health because of the name of Jesus Christ. And he knew that that was offensive. He could have just apologized. He could have just said, my bad, I won't do it again. I won't go into the temple. I won't preach the name of Jesus. I don't know what I was thinking. And they would have let him go and his life would have probably been very easygoing without all this drama. But he refuses to forsake his Lord no matter what comes. And so what we have here in these verses that we consider tonight is, is this in-between, this, this trouble that we're going to face because we have allegiance to King Jesus. But where is the line of offense? Where is the line of backing off? And where is the line of pushing forward? Where is the line of saying, okay, I will obey the law of the land, but only so far. And I might get in trouble. I might lose my job. I might have family members disown me. What, what are you willing to give? We have that here tonight. We have all of this to consider. And so here in the middle of this semicircle, before the Jewish council, Peter and John are standing, and we pick up the story in verse 13. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and comprehended that they were educated and uneducated and ordinary men, they were marveling and begin to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Surrounded by these 71 leaders, Peter spoke with boldness that shocked those leaders. It was a boldness that, re that they remembered seeing in Jesus Christ himself. These are the same Jewish leaders who were pestering Jesus all throughout his earthly ministry. And it, they are the same Jewish leaders that Jesus pleaded with again and again and again to set down their legalism, to set down their, their reason for adhering to Torah, the, the Jewish law, because they, the, the religious leaders wanted to have the best seats at the restaurants. They wanted to be invited to all the parties. They wanted to be referred to as rabbi. Jesus said, you're, you're, not, even, you're not even serving the Lord. You're serving yourselves. Repent and believe the gospel, and he had a boldness that was unshakable. He was never able to be defeated in any debate. One of my favorite stories in the gospel is in Luke chapter 20. The, the leaders come to Jesus, it's the Sadducees, and they come to Jesus with a question about resurrection. 
Maybe you're familiar with the story. If, if, if a man dies and his wife goes to the brother and then he dies and the wife goes to the next brother and he dies and the wife, who's, who's is she in the resurrection? And Jesus gave him an answer that baffled them. And in verse, in verse 40, it, said, it says that they told him, well said, teacher, and then they dared not ask him any more questions. They were unable to defeat Jesus' wisdom. They were unable to debate him and win. Every time they went to bat against Jesus, they lost. They never repented, but they always lost. They knew that he had a boldness and a wisdom beyond them, and that is what they see in Peter and John here. And what we're seeing here is the fulfillment of a promise that Jesus makes in Luke 21. He says, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand on how you will answer. For I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And in the middle of intimidation, outnumbered, and on, you could say, enemy territory, Peter and John stand bold. And Peter says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, it is by this name that this man stands here before you in good health. And then he pulls in the Old Testament. He pulls in the Psalms and he says, this is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And the religious leaders heard this, and they went, wow, these guys are dumb fishermen. They didn't go to Princeton. They didn't go to Harvard. They didn't go to Cambridge. They did, where, did they, where did they learn all of this stuff? They must have been with that Jesus guy. And what I want us to continue to think about throughout the course of these verses is that evidence after evidence after evidence comes up that Jesus is real and that Jesus is good and these guys turn it away and they turn it away and they turn it away. They turn away the name of Jesus every single time. They could not debate. They could not contradict. They could not withstand the wisdom that Peter and John have here because they had been with King Jesus. Verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they began to confer with one another, saying, what should we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy sign has happened through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. They refuse to repent, but they cannot deny the work. They refuse to listen to what James and John are saying, or what Peter and John are saying, but they can't deny that this miracle has happened. This isn't the first time these guys have seen this. We're going to consider that later, but Jesus has been killed, resurrected, and ascended not that long ago. It's been really just a matter of weeks. This is fresh in everybody's mind. And the reason why I bring that up is because you don't really get any, any you can't get any more evidence than this. You know, you run around uh, in our secular culture and people say, well, you know, if, if God did A, B, or C to prove to me empirically that he existed, then I would bow the knee and believe. Well, this is evidence right here that that's actually not true at all. That miracles, as radical and at times necessary as they are, do not guarantee salvation. And this is, what I've been, this is why I've been picking on miracles throughout the course of our study in Acts. It's not because I don't believe in miracles. It's not because I don't think that they don't have their place. But I think that the emphasis on them in our culture is just, it's too much. It's too much. 
There's entire church congregations that just want to see signs and wonders. They don't really care or they're not really concerned where those signs and wonders come from. They just want to see them. And we've considered at length that the devil can, can counterfeit powerful, miraculous works of God. But even here, we have an authentic working of the Lord and still their hearts are hard. So if you're in ministry or if you're evangelizing to a friend or neighbor or family member and they're hard-hearted and they don't want to hear it and you can give them all of the textual evidence, look at how many documents we have in history of the Old Testament and of the New Testament and they're exactly the same from the first century to now and you even have technology where you can verify that. It's easier than ever and I don't want to hear it and I don't care and you can't prove it to me. You're not going to get me to believe in a a worldwide flood and a talking snake. There's no way. It's not going to happen. Don't lose hope. Don't quit. The work of world evangelism is not done. And there's been many who have gone before you and come up against what was ostensibly an, an, an immovable wall of refusal to believe, but they pursued. They kept on preaching. And it really just reveals what Jesus says in John chapter 3, that the light, this is the judgment that has come into the world. Light has come into the world. But men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. That's really the crux of the issue. It's not about evidence. It's not about empiricism. It's about, well, I just don't care because I want to do what I want to do. Well, the, biggest, the, the, the most deadly issue is that people put what they want on, on the throne of their heart. They want to worship what they want to worship. And so give them evidence. If you can, if you, if you can heal, great. Do it. But... The Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Don't neglect the Word of God. Preach Christ and Him crucified boldly. There's been this sign. It's apparent to all who live in Jerusalem and and we cannot deny it. So, what's the conclusion? Verse 17. Well, we don't want this to spread any further among the people. So let us warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. They command them not to speak. And Peter says, Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to hear you rather than God, you be the judge. Peter implored them in verse 12. Remember verse 12, it says, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And that's really why it's so offensive in our, in our culture is because it's the name of Jesus. It's the singular name of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, of the life. There is no other way unto the Father except through him. And if you're here tonight and you're not a believer, you need to hear that. And it might make you mad. It might make you uncomfortable, but that is the truth. What else you got? Jesus Christ is one name, but he shed his blood for all. There's no other major world religion where God comes down. There's no other greater love story than this. There's zero. There's nothing. It's only the name of Jesus, but Jesus is for everyone. And Peter implored them to believe in Jesus, and this is their answer. How are we going to get these guys to shut up? Stop speaking in the name of Jesus. This is their answer. But again, I want to infuse this with hope as we go on because it seems like this is a brick wall. And it's easy when we come into conversations like this, and maybe the same conversation again and again and again with the same person. Remember in John chapter 7? Jesus' brothers, 
They know that their brother can do miracles. They know that he has a following. They know that he has teaching that is absolutely with powerful authority, but everything's still kind of mysterious. And they tell Jesus, Jesus is from way up north in Podunk, Galilee. Not, this is, this is, not, this, this is not the major city. And they say to Jesus, go into Jerusalem. Go to, the, go to New York City. If you want to have a following, if you want to be known, then go to the city and do your miracles there. So nobody who wants to be known does what he does in secret. Go and do your miracles where people will see you. And it says mysteriously in verse 5 that they said this to him because they did not believe in him. And what that means is that they believed he could do miracles. They did not believe he was the Lamb of God who came to seek and to save those that are lost, who would give his, shed his blood for the sins of the world. They did not believe that but they believed he could do miracles. And that sort of following is not what Jesus came after. In John 7, they did not believe in him, but we know that they came to believe in him. They're there in the opening chapters of Acts after his ascension, and two of his brothers went on to write letters of the New Testament. So don't give up. Don't stop praying. Don't stop evangelizing. Don't stop witnessing to Jesus. The devil is gonna try to convince you that it's a lost cause. The kingdom of Jesus cannot die. So keep preaching. Don't listen to the devil. Don't listen to the naysayers. Even Jesus' brothers, they became believers eventually. So Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to hear you rather than God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Peter appeals to a higher authority. Following Jesus is going to cause this sort of division, and I know that it's uncomfortable, and I know that we hate it when this happens. But the fact of the matter is, Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. We are ultimately under a different authority. We are under a different king. We serve a different master. And our master, Jesus, tells us how to live here in this life. And one of the things that he says is to obey the governing authorities. It's one of my least favorite parts of all the Bible, is to not be an anarchist. You obey the traffic laws. You obey all the laws. You do that. You do that. You're in subjection to the court. Even when the courts are a mess, Paul wrote Romans 13, obey governing authorities. He wrote that under the authority of Nero, who eventually is the one that had him killed. And Paul said, okay. And he went and he was killed. We obey the governing authorities. But Peter appeals to a higher court and he says, listen, whenever there's a clash like this, whenever you, the authority of earth, tell me, a citizen of heaven, to do something that the king of that heaven tells me not to do, I cannot comply. I cannot acquiesce to that request. I cannot obey that order. Peter and John have submitted up until this point, and they've done so, it seems, quite remarkably and admirably. I don't know, you know, if I'm ever preaching and someone comes up here and puts me in cuffs, I'm probably going to try to throw a punch. It's just going to come natural. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to get arrested. Peter and John seemed like they just went, you know, and I mean, Peter was the guy who took out a sword to cut off Malchus's head and missed, hit his ear. And now he subjects himself to this authority. He lets himself get arrested. He lets himself spend a night in jail And he's not bickering and whining and complaining because he trusts Jesus. That's a trust in Jesus that I want. That same trust in Jesus is what's allowing him to stand boldly before the Sanhedrin and say all of this because he has been filled with the Holy Spirit. So he appeals to a higher authority. 
Following Jesus is going to bring us to these kinds of crossroads. Matthew 10, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. That is a hard word. Mother against daughter, father against son. Maybe some of you are here tonight and you've experienced that. You've become a Christian. You've fallen in love with Jesus Christ and your family has said to you, are you kidding me? We have that in my family. People who look at my wife and I, family members who look at my wife and I and our belief in, belief in Jesus and go, you're wrong. You're so wrong. I feel bad for you. You're so wrong. And there's no animosity. There's no vitriol. But there is that undergirding of like, you know, at dinner, it's like, oh, I hope this doesn't come up, you know. That's minor. This is, this is the major leagues. So Peter says no. And, you know, if these, these supposed men of God, these religious leaders of Israel, had given a verdict that was honoring to the word of God, then the, the apostles would have been happy to agree. But they did not. Jesus has become a stumbling block because of this. And this is exactly how Scripture describes him. Jesus himself said, I I came to bring a sword. Isaiah 8 says he will be a sanctuary, a stone of defense, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The name of Jesus Christ is offensive. This world is under the sway of the evil one. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are born children of wrath that we need to be saved from the power of sin and death and hell. And whenever you preach that, whenever you preach the singular truth, it is only in the name of Jesus that there is salvation, you say two things that are radically offensive to our culture. That salvation is in only one name, and that is Jesus, and that you need salvation at all. Our culture is not one that thinks we need forgiveness. Our culture is not one who wants to be prayed for, who wants to be saved because we think we have it figured out ourselves. And so it is offensive. It is a stumbling block. It is a dividing sword to preach the name of Christ. And such a rock of offense is the name of Jesus that even with an undeniable miracle before them and the bold testimony of Peter and John, these religious leaders refuse. They can't refute the fact that a sign has been performed an incredible sign, an undeniable sign. Verse 20, we cannot, we cannot stop speaking about what, we've seen, what we have seen and heard. And so when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man who was healed was more than 40 years old. It was an undeniable sign. I want to read this just quick part of this story from Matthew 28 because it just, it just speaks to our need for Jesus, our need to preach the word because miracles in and of themselves are not enough. The word of God, the gospel, not miracles. Romans 1 says that it's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and also the Greek, not miracles. They have their place, they have their time, that's fine, but it is the gospel that saves. Matthew 28, Jesus is killed, he's put in a tomb, the stone is rolled over the entrance, and it's guarded by Roman soldiers. And Roman soldiers were the Navy SEALs of the day. They could win any bar fight. The training that they went through was unbelievable, and if they fell asleep on the job, that was a death sentence. That's how seriously their role was taken. But an angel comes, 
Jesus rises from the dead, and these Roman soldiers fall down like dead men. They saw something happen that they couldn't explain, and they fall down, they pass out, they're on the dirt, and Jesus escapes. And there's all this commotion. What happened? How did, what, what, what's going on? Where did Jesus go? Who took him? No one took him? Well, let's say that somebody took him. Matthew 28, verse 11. Now, while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. There was a bright light. There was a couple of dudes. The stone rolled away. I fainted. I don't know what happened. And when they had assembled with the elders, they took counsel together and they gave these soldiers a large sum of money and said, you are to say say that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. That's a death sentence. Put your lives on the line. Not for Jesus, but covering up a lie about something that you just told us you witnessed. Here's some money. And they went for it. They went for it. I, 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 I wish I knew. It would be, I wish we, we knew what happened to these men. Just tell them that his disciples stole him away by night while you were asleep. And if this is heard before the governor, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. I hope that worked. And so they took the money and they did as they had been instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Shut up, take the money, deny that it happened, and they did it. This is how hard the human heart can actually be. Isn't that amazing? And yet God so loved the world, he sent his son to die for us so that we would not perish in our sins. This guy was over 40 years old. We cannot deny it, but forget about it. Tell these guys to shut up. Tell these guys to stop preaching. Tell these guys that there's going to be consequences. And so for the time being, they let them go. Not because they didn't want to punish them, but because they were afraid of the people. For all were glorifying God for what had happened. So verse 22. So when they were released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. I love this. What's, what's happened here? Well, it's chaos. It's madness. It's, it's, it's intimidating. It's scary. It's uncertain. It's something that no, nobody really wants to live through. Peter and John perform a miracle. They preach the power of the name of Jesus and salvation and no other name but him. They're arrested, and then they were able to face trial and testing. How do you know that your faith is real whenever you're always comfortable, whenever everybody around you believes in, believes in the same Jesus as you and you're just existing in an echo chamber? How, how do you know that you're not just fitting in with your culture? Well, you go through a trial like this, and that affirms your faith. Peter said the tested genuineness of your faith will result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know how your faith is real? It gets tested. So here is a testing, praise God. And they passed the test. Not only did they pass the test, but they were able to preach the gospel to 71 men that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to. Sometimes getting arrested is the only way that those people are going to hear the gospel. You arrest me, you preach the gospel to the cops. That's what, that's what Paul talked about in Philippians. I've been arrested, but I'll tell you what, the whole Praetorian Guards heard the gospel. It's awesome. He was stoked about it. He wanted the word in the gospel to go forward. So they were tested and they preached boldly before the, hands, the, the Sanhedrin. A man has been healed and now the church is unified because on the outside of their walls is active persecution. There, you know, we are willy-nilly about church because we can kind of take it or leave it. We don't walk out onto Hawthorne or Fremont or Belmont or any other street and face open hostility. Praise God, I'm not asking that that happens. But one beautiful thing that would occur if it did is that we all would become real close real fast. 
because we can't take each other for granted. If we think that out there we're going to get arrested and beheaded, how much more are we going to unite to one another? And that's exactly what's happening here. They're released and they go straight back to their companions because they needed each other. There is active persecution in their midst. Concerning the church, in Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, Kephas, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That means three things at least. It means that Christ has a church, it means that the gates of hell will try to prevail against it, and it means that the gates of hell will fail. And here we have a story of the gates of hell. We have a story of the kingdom of God being built. We have the kingdom of God stone by stone by stone, person by person, soul by soul, salvation by salvation, getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and the gates of hell storming against it. The devil in there trying to manipulate everything, trying to tear everything down, and he is failing. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Attacks on the church will prove unfruitful and even beneficial. This is what Paul means in Romans 8 when he says that we are more than conquerors in Christ. That means that our, our enemies, those that come against us, the devil himself and all of his horde, they'll lose. They'll fail. But not only will they fail in their attack against the church, in their attack against Jesus, but in their attack they're actually serving us. Do you believe that? Do you know that that's true? And I'm not asking if you feel that that's true. Do you know that that's true? Do you believe that that is true? That when Satan and his people come against you in word or in action, they're fighting a war that's already been won and they're on the losing side so we can pray for them and we can love them and we can, and we can evangelize to them and not return hate for hate and not seek revenge, but every strike that they have against us serves us. Matthew 5.10, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and speak all kinds of evil against you. Blessed are you when that happens. Blessed are you. Praise God when that happens, for great is your reward in heaven. He said, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. 2 Corinthians 4, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Every scar Every tear, every, every misspoken word that is against you, God knows it, he sees it, it's precious, he takes, a, he takes note of it, he documents it, and heaven is somehow all the better for all eternity because of it. Persecution is actually serving us. Peter and John know that, so they're able to speak boldly and with power to these people who want them dead. They're able to love them. They're able to preach the gospel and say, you killed Jesus, you need to repent, but they're able to do it with love. They're not bombastic, they're not rude, they're not cutting, they're gentlemen while telling the hard truth. And so when they had heard this, verse 24, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, oh master, it is you who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. That's Exodus 20 who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, why did the Gentiles rage? This is Psalms chapter two. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against your Christ. 
He names them one by one, the Gentiles and all the peoples and the kings and the rulers. And we saw that throughout Jesus' trial and his crucifixion. The Romans, the Israelites, King Herod, the ruler Pilate, all of them came against Jesus and it was futile. It was vain. They raged and they lied to have Jesus killed and it backfired. And all of their effort and all of their conniving, all they did was fulfill what God's plan was all along. And so all of their raging and all of their devising and all of their scheming, it was in vain. And they should have submitted to Jesus and repented. Every ounce of effort that they took to extinguish him was exactly what God had planned to do. That's what Peter said in his first sermon. It was the predetermined and foreknowledge of God that this would happen. And it says that again here, verse 27, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and all the people, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. (laughs) What they did, this is that mystery, that ongoing mystery in Scripture between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Pilate felt like his hands were tied, so he washed them. The Romans were just killing a Jewish guy. The religious leaders were upset because they thought someone was falsely claiming to be Messiah. Everybody was doing what they wanted to do. All of the characters involved were acting under their own volition, and yet it somehow mysteriously was exactly what was predestined to occur. And that also means that Jesus was never a victim. There was never a moment through that entire ordeal where Jesus was like, ah, ah, out of control, victimized, out of power. He knew what he was doing every step of the way. And Hebrews tells us that it was the joy, it was for the joy set before him that he endured, that he endured the cross. Listen to their prayer. Listen to what they ask for. Verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders happen through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I, this is so, they and you know, and this is, this is true for all of the rest of the New Testament. You never see people praying for the persecution to stop. You never hear prayers for the threats to abate or to be assuaged. Paul never once says, I pray, Lord, I never have to get on a ship again. I pray, Lord, I never have to go to jail again. I pray, Lord, that I'm never going to be beaten again. You never hear him say that. We may, I mentioned this last week. The only time you hear Paul say, woe is me, is when he says, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That tells me that there is a power and a boldness available to us in God the Spirit that we are sorely lacking. And that's not his fault, it's our fault. That convicts me. And my prayer is that, my, my ongoing prayer for myself and for y'all and for Dorf Hope in general and for the church, the big C church worldwide, is that when individuals are put in this position where they're surrounded in a semicircle by 71 of their enemies, they're able, as Peter was in verse 8, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and then to speak with boldness and with power, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be confident and to be bold, not to apologize, to be submitted, to be kind, to be winsome, to be gentle, and to preach the gospel, to preach the name of Jesus Christ with boldness, without diluting his name, without compromise, but with gentle love. 
the con- the, 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 with active threat before them, they just pray for power to preach all the more. And when they had earnestly prayed, verse 31, the place where they had gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with confidence. The place is shaken. At Pentecost, there was the sound of the rushing wind. Here, there is a shaking. At Pentecost, they saw the speaking in tongues. Here, there is the speaking in boldness. The church of Christ cannot die, will not die. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Ask yourself that. I can't answer that for you. Jesus is alive. And the life that he gives you, the Holy Spirit alive inside of you, is a life that is overqualified for death. It is a life that swallows death up. Death is swallowed up in victory. And so look at how it unites the church, verses 32 through 37. And the the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one was saying that any of their possessions was their own, but everything was in common. That's the kind of unity that the church can have under great persecution. As much of a bummer as persecution would be, this would be a sweet reality. And with great power, the apostles were bearing witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, still preaching the name of Jesus. And great grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And it would be distributed to each as any had need. And now Joseph, a Levite, from the island of Cyprus, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, and his name means translated son of encouragement, he owned a field and he sold it and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. There was not a needy person among them. It's the fulfillment of the prophecy, Deuteronomy 15.4, which says, There will no longer be any poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. And here we see a fulfillment of that. The church took care of each other. And this is, I have to, I have to point this out because this verse has been used to, to, by the masses to scream for a state of socialism or of communism. But that's not, that's not what's, what's happening here. A lot of uh, what, the, what the scholars point out is very likely, at least to some degree, what's, what happened is that at, at Pentecost, with thousands and thousands coming from all over into one place, hearing the gospel, 3,000 of them being saved that day, some of them may have just stayed and had nothing. Some of them may have lost their jobs because of their faith. We don't know exactly what it is that happened, but within the body of Christ, there is this individual voluntary benevolence. And when we get into chapter 5, we consider the case of Ananias and Sapphira. We know that this was not a command, that this level of benevolence was not a thou shalt sell everything and put it into a collective pot. It was individuals who were willing to sell what they had in order to give to those who had need. It wasn't just everybody laying around in one communal pot, sharing of it equally. People were going to work People were sharing the load. But those who needed an, an actual helping hand were given that by those out of their benevolence, out of their love, out of their trust. And there is one who's pointed out, indivi- in, there's one who's, who's specified uh, named Barnabas. 
Joseph, a, Leb- a Levite from the island of Cyprus. We're gonna, we're gonna see Barnabas again. Barnabas is, introdu- is introduced here because he's gonna be a prominent figure throughout the rest of the book of Acts. He's actually the one who vouches for the apostle Paul in chapter nine. The, the, <clears throat> the, the man Saul, the Pharisee Saul, who was persecuting the church to the death, becomes a Christian and then has to convince a bunch of Christians that he's a Christian and he's not there <laughs> undercover to kill them. Barnabas is the one to vouch for him and say, no, 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 this guy's legit. He's met Jesus. He's safe. I am vouching for him. And then Barnabas is actually the one who accompanies Paul on his first missionary journey, and we'll get to that in Acts chapter 13, probably nine or ten months from now. So that's Barnabas. So this is the, the beginning of the early church. They faced hostility. They were arrested. They were threatened. And as we're going to see, it's just going to get worse and worse. The threatening is turning to arresting. The arresting is going to turn into beatings. The beatings are going to turn into chasing out a pursuit. That is going to turn into actual martyrdom, actual death for the name and the faith of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is worth it. And I hope that we never experience that here in this country But just in case, my prayer is that you love Jesus. He came to die for you. He gave everything for you. Believe in him. Trust him. He's trustworthy. Amen?